If you haven't signed up for our Discord channel, please do so. And you can leave really mean comments as well about how much you hate us and you hate our show and you think, you know, sucks and Chris is stupid and I'm a loudmouth. Thank you very much for that. And I have every right to tell you to go to hell, which I did. And if that doesn't deter you, sign up for our Discord channel now at majordomamedia.com. There's a link that will take you to our community where sometimes you get these assholes, but all the time, most of the time, they're really great comments and it's a great community. And if you don't care about any of those things, and even if you are one of those assholes, you can still get an amazing discount code to 10% off on any day cookware, 20% off athletic brewing, $40 off your first order of your coffee, 15% off East Fork. And of course, 10% off this thing called Momofuku and uh, Momofuku Goods. Uh, we're bringing the restaurant pantry to your home kitchen. And we have two new noodle flavors, the sweet and spicy, which is similar to a bibimbap sauce and a spicy chili, which honestly, I'm trying to feed a little bit to my kids every day because that's the flavor of choice right now. And my household, it's very delicious. We've been working on those things for a while. And we have a bunch of things coming down the pipeline for you. So check those out. And yeah, Yang, anything else? Well, it's a shamelessly plug. You know, our TV shows, Secret Chef and, and everything else out there. But let me ask you this, Dave. What, what do you call that style of endorsement for, for Discord? Well, how would you characterize that? Um, art. <laughs> I just want to hear like a similar endorsement of like carrots. Let me think about this. Carrots. They look really good when Bugs Bunny's eating them on TV, but they taste terrible in real life. Unless you cook them in butter and honey and some kind of sugar and you caramelize the natural sugars in them and you try to coax out all the flavors that are actually inherently good in carrots so you don't have to taste the inherently bad things in carrots. <laughs> like I legit- Buy carrots today. I legitimately want to eat a carrot now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very effective. Give me something else. Uh, let's uh, endorse the Honda Civic. If you're thinking about entering the ride-sharing economy, (laughs) Honda Civic is a fantastic car for you. Great fuel mile per gallon. It's very spacious for your back customer. You can fit three people very, very comfortably with at least 24 inches of clear leg room for your knees. And if you need to get to the airport, you don't have to pay extra for a SUV or a black sedan type car because the trunk space is massive and it'll fit any kind of luggage you need to get to the airport or train station or whatever you need to go. Honda Civic, one of the best cars. The reason why it's so popular is for so many years, it's one of the best cars around. So buy it today. <laughs> this this is like a whole, we need to start a whole agency based on this kind of advertisement. One, one more. Give me one more ad. <laughs> uh, let's review. Uh, Herman Miller Aeron chairs with the positive and the negative. Herman Miller? It's like the what fancy, is that? fancy office know. chair. Fancy office chairs. If you're a finance bro and you are <laughs> self-aware of that you're a finance bro and all the douchebaggery associated with it and you're trying to shed that image, let me assure you that buying a Herman Miller something chair isn't going to wash away those stains. Continue reading your Esquire magazine. But, and your men's health. But they sure are comfy on your butt. 
Just because you no longer wear a Patagonia sweater vest does not mean you're not a finance bro anymore. Or your vineyard vines. Oh, uh, this is a highly Good luck with those whales on your belt, buddy. <laughs> this is a highly effective ad campaign. <laughs> All right, now on to our show. Look, we just gave three great endorsements. No, got paid for none of them. Got paid none for of it. none of them. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Rigor Podcast Network, presented by Major Delamia. Thank you, Alatango, as always. And the Dave Chang Show, where we give you um, unintentional, unrequested endorsements. I think we just came, created a new segment. This is fantastic. Or Dave, just un, unpaid advertisement. <laughs> the following is a non-paid endorsement. Celery. <laughs> the only time it tastes good is with ranch dressing or blue cheese. Or in a mirepoix, or if you're a, a farm animal. Oh my god! And if you do think that celery tastes good with peanut butter and raisins, send us an email at askdave@majordemomedia.com and send us your address so we can dox you to the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yuck. Yuck. All right. Well, guys, we're, we're going to do. We have a podcast. Welcome back, Chris Yang. It's good to be back. I almost forgot what it was like, but it feels feels great. And we're recording a duble today, but unfortunately, I think we're only going to get Chris for one because we're very, very busy. We were. I was planning to do two, and I walked in, and Dave and I looked at the pile of things I have to write for our company, and he was like, you're only on one today. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a good, it's a good um, We have a word of the day. Precipitate. I didn't know that precipitate had anything to do with the world other than weather. Did you? I mean, yes, but precipitate verb to cause something to happen quickly or suddenly. Here's something I don't know. And and piggybacking off what you just said, precipitation is rain. Does there, if, if it's raining, is it precipitating? I honestly don't know. Looks like it's yeah. going to precipitate today. Who would use the word precipitate? <laughs> right? That's the, really what the dictionary needs to have. <laughs> Who's the, who, who uses the word precipitate? That is, wait, that is an excellent, excellent addition to the, to the dictionary. It'd be, you know, country because of Because if I have to use the word, the verb quickly or suddenly, I'm going to use the word quickly or suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> I would love if, if the dictionary had your, you know, obviously the definitions, the meanings, the country of origin, the pronunciation guide, and then a little picture of the type of person who uses this word. Yeah. Mm. I think the audience would like us to precipitate more quickly into this podcast. Yeah, sure. No, that's that's ridiculous. This is the show, people. Um, so we're going to do, uh, I'm going to get into three things. We're going to get a slice of life. I went to my second Dodgers game. First one happened to be a World Series game where they lost to the Slytherin, the Slytherin of the baseball world, Astros, yep. the Houston Astros. We're going to get into an Ask Dave and then a quick moif. All right, let's get into the show. Let's precipitate quickly into the show. Is that a double verb? 
That's not, that's a double verb. That's nothing. Is that a dangling modifier? A, let's precipitate quickly into. You know what's a good name for a podcast? Dangling modifier. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else, like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit, where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a very delicious place. So refreshing, you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to, though. But take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash Pure Leaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry iced tea. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. We have three things very specific that I ate regularly in high school. So I, I lived in school. I lived in school for, yeah, I lived in, I lived in boarding. I went to boarding school, did not love it, hated it very much. And I was very, very unhappy when our two past Supreme court justices got nominated, but that's a whole nother story. Oh my God. I can tell you the one thing I ate regularly in high school in in this basement lounge of McCavanaugh Hall. Cavanaugh Hall. Cavanaugh Hall, by the way. Ugh. Ugh. Family comes from Cavanaugh. Ugh. Yeah. Cavanaugh Hall, the basement. Uh, there was a food machine that you could buy a cheeseburger. What? And it was refrigerated. You could put it, pop in the microwave. You could pre- it was one of those microwaves you could only press a number like like one, two, three, or four. And you did like two and it came out super hot. And there was a bottle of Tabasco and you put Tabasco on it. And it was a brother or a brother. What was his name? Fuck. The guy that ran the, 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 the sort of the, the, the school snack shop in the basement was brother or something. And I never understood why brothers, we had a couple of brothers and a bunch of fathers, right? <laughs> father or father Elliot, father Gavin. But I don't remember why brothers couldn't. Become fathers. Is that true? You know, or why they chose to become a brother? Like, you know, what is it? They're like, yeah, the celibacy is fucking garbage. <laughs> I'll just become a brother. I'm okay. <laughs> Wait, so a brother is a father who fucks? <laughs> oh, careful where you go there, buddy. No, I, I I haven't thought of this person in nearly 40, like 35 years, for, for 30 plus years. Brother something. And he had a big mustache. He looked like Wilford Brimley. Okay. Okay. Anyway, I actually, the microwave was on the counter. It wasn't a vending machine. I'd say, you know, can I get a cheeseburger? And then there was always Tabasco sauce and I'd douse it with Tabasco sauce. And that's why I, I would, uh, I would, uh, I ate those like all the time. That was like the number one thing I would eat. A microwave cheeseburger. Were that was okay. Is this a type of thing that you gravitated to or like these were popular across the across the board? Popular across, but I became synonymous with it. <laughs> you know? 
it's a good thing to become synonymous with a vending machine. Yeah. Burger. Yeah. <laughs> good job. 14 year old Dave. <laughs> Wait, so uh, was your school, was it, was it free? Like with your tuition or did you have, no, it was like 50, it was like 75 okay, cents or whatever okay. it was back then. The second thing I would eat regularly. I never had shepherd's pie in my life mm. until I got to high school. And I would eat that regularly because guess what? I didn't think it was that bad. <laughs> Again, is this a type shepherd's of shepherd's pie is pretty good. I did. I, I shepherd's pie is another one. I think for Asian kids, we don't discover until our, our first real encounter with, with white, white people. But I saw that for the first time. And I was like, damn, that's a pie just made out of mashed potatoes. What could Dude, be, it's so good. And gravy. What could be wrong with that? But you say you ate it because are you are you implying that other people looked at it like it was gross and you were like, eh, not too bad. Yeah, everyone thought it was gross, but I was always like privately. I was like, it's awesome. It's, it's shepherd's pie day. <laughs> <laughs> but did outwardly were like, oh, gross. Oh, shepherd's pie again. Oh, no, no. This is this is so gross. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it was sort of it, it was pretty good, man. You're telling me you, you don't have something like that for you? No, there's a hundred things like that for me <laughs> that I would walk into the, like, at, at, for me, it was in college. And everyone would be like, oh, man, the Cal Dining Commons, they are the worst, man. The food is so gross. That that rib BQ thing is so nasty. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's disgusting. You're like, oh, let me get yours. Can I have yours? <laughs> Can I eat that one? <laughs> yeah, man. The same thing with airplane food for me. Everyone always complains about it. I'm like. Not bad. I'll eat this. Not bad at all. Not bad at all. All right. That's two. Um, Shepherd's pie and burgers. It's been so long, but we used to do this a lot. We would get Taco Bell. A lot. A lot. It was the closest fast food place from campus. Mm -hmm. So it was either Taco Bell or this place that I believe is still there off of uh, Leesburg Pike or I can't remember. Rockville Pike. There was a Taiwanese restaurant, like a cafe, mm -hmm. and you would get like Taiwanese chicken on rice. Ooh. And I had a car, so I'd take all the, the Thai students. There were a lot of Thai kids. I'd always take them there. Or I would take them to Panda Express if they paid for my, my meal. What were your off-campus... That was privileges. it. You're allowed to just, were you allowed to go in? I can't remember, but like you had to sign out, but you know, you could go out off campus and that was where I would go or literally within walking distance. So oftentimes you'd get both in the same trip, a seven layer burrito, or there was another melt thing. What was this melt thing at Taco Bell? You're, hold on a second. You're the holy shit. You are the only other human I have ever encountered in my entire life who also ordered the fucking seven-layer burrito from Taco Bell. Is this still in existence? I, I brought this up to so many people. This is the thing. This is, You just said, is there not something in your life where like everyone else thought that was gross and you thought it was pretty good? The seven-layer burrito. Everybody, I've, I've never met anyone else in my life who remembers the seven-layer burrito. I mean, of course I do because I ate it. Uh, it, was, it was very delicious. It seemed like it's. I'm trying to find the first. The first Google result is it's still being sold in India. At the top. Oh, it's Bell. gone. Taco Bell in India still has it, but that's it. Oh wow, it's gone. Oh, there it goes. 
So those are those are the three things, and 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 so it would either be this Taiwanese chicken bowl, or they also had like this cheesy melt thing. It wasn't a taco. Hmm. I remember growing up, my my parents' friends opened a Taco Bell, and I walked in and I saw the bucket of where the ground meat was from, and it was like, you know what it looked like? I know your parents own a Baskin Robbins. It literally comes in a, it did back then. Like that paper container that ice cream comes in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with a metal thin lid. You know, that kind of metal lid where you come on like a drink. Sometimes you peel off the lids. Yes. That's what, sort of what it was, but on a paper bucket. And they would open it up and I would just see a giant vat of cooked ground beef. And I never to that ever since I've never eaten ground beef at Taco Bell. Everything else is okay. Room temp though, too, right? It was, was it room temp or was no, it? No, 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 no. It was in the it was in the walk-in, oh but it came, God. came cooked. Just a bucket of beef. Yeah, my my high school. This will this will make you jealous of my high school experience. We had both a Taco Bell and a Panda Express annex on campus. Those were our lunch services. There was a Panda Express that just was that your was that your equivalent of chunko nabe? <laughs> yeah, basically. And then you would just eat that and take a nap because that's what the, uh, if you don't know what chunko nabe is, it's basically a bowl full of carbs. It's with a little bit of vegetables, but it's a bowl full of carbs. And if you're a sumo wrestler, you eat that like 16 times a day, and you take a giant nap after it. So that's why I said big boy Asian style. Yeah. Chris Yang, did you eat a chunko nabe? Yes, did you treat? The Taco Bell and Pan Express, like your chunko nut. Yeah, I was, I was, I was, uh, I was bulking up for uh, prom season, the the fallow season of, of school dances when I didn't get to go with anyone. Yeah, you you stand in line for your orange chicken or your chilito, which is a burrito with chili in the middle, and you stand in line and you look at the popular kids sitting there and you think, oh, I'm not over there because I'm over here. <laughs> well played, sir. But yeah. I'm proud of you. If there was a Taco Bell or a Panda Express, and I was so jealous of, even my college campus didn't have any fast food. When I visited college campuses and they had like a McDonald's and a Taco Bell on campus, you could get it at, use your school credits. That's insane. Oh my God. (laughs) It would be no freshman 15 to be a freshman 150. (laughs) I can use the same credit card I used to pay for my laundry to buy pizza. Yeah. Oh my god. My pizza. Beautiful thing. <laughs> I love that. What made you th- what made you think about that? I don't know. You know the one that put that in there. Hmm. What I in high school. That's wild. I never thought I never thought about your your boarding school eating days. That's 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 brand new info. Yeah, but I do remember eating Shepherd's Pie being like, uh, privately. I'm so excited. <laughs> it's so cool. I get to eat like one of my favorite things. <laughs> Uh, let's take a break. All right. We got a slice of life. So I went to my second Dodgers game and I didn't realize how close Dodgers is to Dodger stadium is to my house. Hmm. It's so close. Very close. I should go to more games. <laughs> yeah. I don't even care about baseball. You should, but it's an excuse to just get out of the house. And Hugo didn't care too much about baseball, but he ate chicken fingers. He ate a hot dog. He had cotton candy. Yeah. He had a Sprite. And he had ice cream in a helmet. I spent like $150 on those things for Hugo. 
where you if you're if you're able to sit at a baseball game in the shade I would say it's about as close to staying inside as you can get while going outside. Mm, mm, mm. Amen to that. <laughs> I, I thought it was great. I had a great time. The only other game I went to was when they lost to the world, the, the Astros game six. And I was like, who cares? <laughs> but you, at you're, this time, you're an anti Astros guy. I know you declare classify them. I as like the t-shirt. I like the 70s, 80s logos. I'm a big fan of 70s baseball logos. Um, so I have an extensive collection of baseball t-shirts. Probably my fa- favorite is the Astros. The White Sox have a good one too. The Cubbies actually had a good one. The Mariners had the Trident, which I don't know why they don't bring back. Yeah. But the Astros just had the star with the retro lettering. I loved it. It's probably my favorite. So, and also I was rooting for the Astros in the 2005, 2010, because they were historically bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they became great. So I had to stop worrying. Right. Well, they have the, they have the most amazing turnaround, largely in part uh, due to cheating, but yes. Who doesn't cheat? I mean, listen, I'm reading uh, Harry Potter to Hugo, even though he doesn't know anything I'm talking about. (laughs) Neither do I. Can we just a quick, quick digression here? How the fuck does Gryffindor not be accused of cheating? All they do is break the rules every year. It's, it's, you know, as somebody who's been accused of collusion, there is some serious fucking collusion happening in Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. How is it every year at the end, Dumbledore's just like, how many points do you guys need? Yeah, 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 okay. And uh, 50 more <laughs> points to uh, Gryffindor for um, it's total bullshit. cleaning up the cafeteria. <laughs> Talk about, you know, uh, what, what is the, it's not the patriarchy, it's the Gryffindarchy. <laughs> it's a, the it's, deck is stacked against the Hufflepuffs, the Ravenclaws, so basically the nerds, the weirdos. The nerds <laughs> and, and the weirdos are. And, and, you know, the good people, which are Slytherin. Anyway. <laughs> I agree, man. I agree. I I don't know how I started talking about this when I started talking about the Dodgers. Help me retrace, retrace my steps. How did I get it there? Was Astros are Slytherin. I'm reading. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. To Hugo, I think. Astros are Slytherin and Gryffindor are bad. They're bad. That's my <laughs> my new interpretation. Gryffindor is bad. <laughs> Voldemort is just misunderstood. Yeah, somehow you got so bored of your own baseball story that you started talking about Harry Potter. So back yeah. to the baseball. Anyway, back to the baseball. It's hot. We're in the shade. Thank you to Chris Chen for telling us to get into the shade. And I think like the fifth or sixth inning, I didn't realize that on uh, there's netting now on the sides going from first the, from home to third base. Did you know that? When did that happen? But I think I think a couple of fans got hurt by not balls but like flying bats. Like, oh, so that happened recently, the past like five, six years? Uh, maybe like the past five, ten years, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I didn't even notice that until today, uh, Sunday or sa- Saturday, whenever it was. Anyway, and fifth or sixth inning comes in, I got a beer on my right hand. <laughs> There's no one to the left of me because it was hot. And we're really on the border of the shade. And it was like really hot. But like if you switch just enough you could get the shade so the sun wasn't beating down on you. sure and you had a right-handed hitter okay. yeah and the ball 
foul ball straight. And I've honestly, I've been to about a hundred plus games in my life. I have to think about it. A lot of, a lot of Orioles games, many, 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 many Orioles games. I've always been in the vicinity, always been in the vicinity many times of foul ball. But it's always been, oh, it's coming, it's coming. And then you see it's really like 20 feet away, 10 feet away. You're not even that, you're close, but not even in the, the action to even try to get it. I wasn't even right. paying attention. Having a conversation and I look up and I'm like, huh. Because there had been some fly balls that hit the net. So I wasn't even paying attention. But this one was just mm-hmm. like a rocket up. And it was sm- it was like coming. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I keep on looking at it and looking back down. I'm like, I think that's coming my way. So this is a towering foul ball that has yeah. cleared the netting. Yeah. You're sitting on the third base. Very high. It went straight up like a moonshot. And I'm like, man. You're tracking it. I'm tracking it. And I'm also now thinking the wind, it's its not going to happen to me. It's going to go like it always does, somewhere not near me. And I would say it's like 100 feet in the air to me. And I'm like, oh, shit. I think it's like, it's like coming pretty close to me. And I keep on looking, and it's very slow. And then I'm thinking, huh. What I start thinking immediately is how terrible it would hurt if I tried to catch it. like. Bare hand, my, bare my hand left hand. cricket style, yeah. And what I was overcome with fear because of how much that would hurt my hand, how I might break a digit, how I would embarrass myself, number one. Sure. Right? Sure. Because there's no question in my mind that if I try to catch it like this, which, listen, let's be honest, I was a lineman, I played golf. Catching moving balls, that's not in my forte, not in my... Not in my genetics. <laughs> you like to hit sedentary balls. Yeah. Yeah. And push around other big people. <laughs> but like, I was like, all of these thoughts that are running through my head. I'm like, what, in what world do I think that I'm confident enough that I will catch this? If this was just like a, a like a little throw in the air, I would probably drop the ball. Mm-hmm. But this is now like a meteor falling from the sky. And I'm like, Oh, what is, what is, what is Steve and the people around you doing? Are they standing? They're not even paying attention. I don't think <laughs> it's just you looking at it's just me literally chicken little, just watching the sky yeah. fall. Okay. Cause I, we have kids everywhere and, and I'm looking and I'm like, huh? So, all, so these, these thoughts are running through my head. Number one, oh, that's going to hurt. Number two, I'll probably break something. Then I'm like, huh, I have a hat. Can I drop my beard and cold, yeah. like use the hat like this? <laughs> like, and then I'm like, I don't think I have enough time, right, to do that. And then the next thought was like, I could just be one of those cool dads and drop everything and catch it in my beer like this. <laughs> I could be. I could be. Like, uh huh. And you know, like one of those skydivers that pulls the cord right before it's too late. Mm-hmm. I pulled the cord, but I got out of the way a little bit. So <laughs> wait, 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 wait. So the, my last thing thought was this. The only thing that can happen if I try to do this, right? Again, this is like offering that, hey, I know CPR. Oh, I know how to speak Spanish. No, I don't know how to catch a baseball. I'm not going to try to do this on. And it, what immediately came was self-preservation. 
the only thing that's going to happen here, and the problem is there's no one to my left. There's just like empty row. Only thing that's going to happen is I'm going to get embarrassed on TV. It's not national. It's a day game. But unequivocally, it'll get pulled. I will be outed. And I'll embarrass Steve. So the only thing I could do was like pretend that I wasn't really looking like this when it came to me. <laughs> yeah, is your hand up in like, the air though? <laughs> so it didn't hit me. In, it didn't hit me in the face. It was like ah, ah. I like tried to me the last second just pretend like I wasn't looking. Like ah. I did one of this. Ah. Yeah, oh I really my did. Gosh, <laughs> you, you just. <laughs> And it was, it was like a, it was a, it was a lean to the, the other, the right side. And sure enough, the ball lands to the left of my seat, hits the ground, and then the so fan I, I, catches it behind me on the hop. And I'm like, oh my God! Oh my God! I, I can't believe the ball just, oh my God! That's amazing! Oh my God! As though you hadn't oh, been yeah. watching it the whole time. And I literally time. was like, dude, that's so sick. Oh, my God. <laughs> I can't believe I missed that. I'm so stupid. <laughs> but if they play back the slow-mo instant replay, you see David Chang ever so <laughs> casually. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was wondering if someone could pull up that clip. I almost would want someone from Dodgers Stadium TV crew to pull that stadium, that up because it would be the funniest thing anyone's ever seen. <laughs> oh, my God. That's amazing. I can't believe I missed oh, that. that was just, uh, it was just out of reach for me. I, I had my hand up and everything. It was just, just And I could have oh, clearly shoot. have caught. Shoot. And all I wanted to do in my life was to, you know, the bucket list was to catch a foul ball and, uh, you know, and I did that out of self-preservation. And two, it's like I didn't want to embarrass myself in front of my son. What would have been what would what would have been worst worst case scenario outcome? Best case scenario is I know this. One, I would have caught the ball with my left hand, mm-hmm. and then I would have immediately dropped and be like, oh, 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 oh that hurts. That's the best That's, case scenario. Best case scenario is that. Best case scenario is you catch it, drop it, go. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> oh, God damn it. Oh, it hurts. What's the worst case? I mean, that's kind of the worst case scenario. No, that's the best case because everything else is way worse than that. I misjudged the ball, hits me in the face. Could have clearly have happened. Right. Break, hold it. Hold your hand. And I could, I literally could have died and never come back. I'd be dead. First band to die from missing a, (laughs) misjudging the trigonometry of a ball. Oh, Dave's dead. What happened? Oh, God. Um, yeah. He missed a foul ball. (laughs) Also, I could have like flipped over the chairs because no one was sort of in front of me either. There was no result that was going to be good. So honestly, much like the, the 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 super genius people that play trivia games and they back out at a at a like a two hundred thousand dollars instead of going for a million, I use my emotional intelligence to to create your EQ. 
a scenario where I was like, this is the best scenario for me was to get out of the way. Listen, man, you made the safest play. You saw the ball bearing down on you. What would you have done? Thought, what would you have done? Bearing down you? I would have tried to one hand it and then I would have failed. I would have, I would have, I would have tried to catch it and then one handing the humiliation of yeah. <laughs> one handing a baseball. It's going to hurt so much for every, every, every half inning after that, they would check in on me on TV and be like, he's still crying <laughs> yeah. over there. Ladies and gentlemen, he's still down there. You're going to hear from my attorney. <laughs> I would have taken it on the head and then sued the Dodgers. Yeah, that's what I would have done. So I wanted to share that with the world. You would say that uh, I'm being honest about what happened and nobody saw what happened. And I'm just coming out and telling you that's what happened. I, uh, I, I, do you I think that you're, do you think minority? Are you in the, do you think, do you think that people will relate? Do you think people will be like, dude, I would have ducked out? No, I think I'm the I only would, person that will tell you the truth. Everyone, no, I, I think everyone would be like, dude, I would have caught that. It was it the true. worst nightmare that had happened. And again, even if I had a baseball glove, I'm actually thankful I didn't have a baseball glove. Because number one, what grown man actually wears a goddamn baseball glove to the baseball game? Two. Chris, Chris, Chen, Chris Chen does. Your, your buddy who helped you with those tickets does. Let me. Okay. I'm I'm going back. I'm I'm going back and I'm going to try I'm going to come clean. Cuz when you were describing your thought process as you you watched that ball, you're like, "Damn, that is really high. My god, that's really going to hurt my hand if it if it hits my hand. What if I miss it? It hits me on the head." All of that is basically exactly what would go through my head when I played outfield in little league. <laughs> Just like, "Oh, that's a really high ball. I hope it doesn't come here." Oh, it's coming here. I hope I don't yeah, catch this. I mean, my only way I could uh, so, understand that it was before I, my dad let um Prevented me from playing soccer, but I played soccer for like a season or two. And you know where they put little kids that are not good at soccer in goal. And I played goalie. Yeah. And you know what my thought process was every time? Like, oh my God, I hope they never shoot the ball on me. I was so bad at goalie. Oh. So, so bad at goalie. The teacher, yeah. I mean, that teacher, the coach would get so mad. He was like, you're supposed to stop the ball. It's like, well, it just move it so fast. <laughs> Why don't you use your hands, David? Uh, I was going to hurt. What do you want me to do? No, I, I mean, I recognize all of this mentality from uh, the last dance with Michael Jordan. I remember him saying the same thing. Just, I hope they don't give me the ball. I hope I don't have to shoot. I I, yeah, but the funny thing is, is that's all changed. If, if those are the sports I won't do, but. You know, if I have to push another big dude in front of me, if I have to put him in a headlock, if I, you know, some kind of grappling thing, do it. Very, very, very good. Very good. In your wheelhouse, um, for sure. If I have to, like, cook under pressure for a very important person critic, very good. Anything else, not so good. It's just very specifically move, stopping a moving projectile. That I can take a bullet. your kryptonite. <laughs> I can stop a bullet <laughs> with my belly. Oh, that's not true. Um, not true. All right. Now, you know, 
Now you know how to dodge catching a foul ball. I just gave you the steps. We'll take a break. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. All right, we got an Ask Dave segment. Chris is still laughing about this Dodgers game. That was that was all about how to dodge a foul ball. Yeah, I thought I did it. In a, that was the etiquette. Nobody's ever done it on the Bill Simmons podcast network. Nobody has ever went in detail about how to dodge a foul ball ever. And I just did it. First time in podcast history. <laughs> Make it look like you didn't know what was happening. Yeah. And then the key is to celebrate the person who got it, which be like, oh, man, good job, good job, good job. I really did. I was like, oh, my God, that was amazing. <laughs> so bad, dude. Hey, Dave. Over the past couple of years, it seems like some of the city's favorite traditional – what city? Uh, city's favorite traditional Cantonese-style restaurants are closing up shop. I know Cantonese food is still appreciated and popular and popularity. I know Cantonese food is still appreciated and popularity for yum cha and Canto style seafood are still going strong. What gives? Is there something that we're missing here? Love the show. Harrison. All right. Hmm. Harrison. That is his Cantonese name. Yeah. Harrison W. I, 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 I mean, I would, I would wager a lot of money that Harrison W is a Harrison Wong. <laughs> <laughs> or woo or, could be a woo. It's a Wong. It's a Wong. <laughs> okay. No, is it a Wong? It's Wang Woo or Wong. Yeah. Can it be any of those three? It's definitely a Wong, and not a. It's it's definitely Harrison, Harrison Wong. Wong. <laughs> it could be uh, Harrison Woo. Do you think it's Harrison Woo? I think it could be Woo. It's Woo or Wong. Yeah, it's Woo or Wong. <laughs> woo or Wong. If you were any other skin color or ethnicity. Yeah. You couldn't make that joke, but you can make that joke. I know it's my, it's my, it's the one. It's the one. This is called Asian privilege. When they talk about white privilege, this is Asian privilege. Um, what do you think, Yang? Uh, yeah, traditional Cantonese style restaurants are closing up shop. Uh, I can see why. Cantonese food is fucking hard to make. Why is it so hard to make? No, it's it's. I saw something online. I was somebody was complaining. I was watching. I was watching some TikToker who does all these, you know, Canto recipes, and everyone's like, "It's always the same ingredients. It's always the same ingredients." You know, it's ginger scallion and soy and uh, Shaoxing wine. And I was like, "It's it's the same ingredients 
prepared like 500,000 different ways. Like there's, there's variety and finesse and refinement and, and technique and all of it. And like, yeah, it seems deceptively simple, but it's really fucking hard, really hard. Do you think we'll ever be able to tell your TikTok story one day? Uh, TikTok boys. We can, we can, oh, shit. I mean, not, we can't tell, no we can't tell it using that phrase. We have to spring it. There's a, there, okay, David and I have an insane story. David, we don't have a story. No, you do. There's no way to tell the story, but all I will tell you is that it's too improbable to understand or even imagine the situation that arose. It's, it's, but it's the best, worst thing. I don't even know how to. <laughs> I mean, there's no point in talking about it because I can't talk about it. But you should know that Chris Ying, this is legitimately, uh, Chris Ying was helping me out on a, on an event. And I'll just tell you the aftermath without even exactly what happened. But this is what went through my mind. I think Chris Ying is a Manchurian candidate and he was just activated by Pre- Premier Xi to completely sabotage this event. Because there is no other, this was the most, that was Occam's razor for me. <laughs> the most probable scenario was like Chris Yang is an agent of the state he was, of China. It's not even, it's, not even, it's, it's like he's, he's laughing right now. But when he said this, he was 100% serious. In the aftermath of this fucking enormous, enormous gaffe I made, he, Dave literally said, I should be so mad at you. But I literally think, I truly, literally think the only explanation is that you have a microchip implanted in your brain. <laughs> From here, she activated you. And go- I therefore I cannot be mad because this, this is the only logical explanation for what you just did. And I was like, "Fuck!" It's, it's like I don't. I, I totally blacked out. The other thing you also said, God, I wanted. To, I, I wish we could tell people, but. Suffice it to say, the only other the only other description Dave gave was what I did on this night in question, which people will we'll, we'll spring some version of this on on them eventually and won't tell them that it was this story. Dave was like, "What you did was crazier than Wilson at the Oscars, man. <laughs> Legitimately crazy." If I could just say, Chris, was like he was like an android, like. CP3, like, like R2D2 or CP3, like uh, his brain just stopped functioning. It was the most insane thing I've ever seen in my life. It was like, oh. yeah. I was just so proud to have witnessed this because it was so crazy. It was like he was an android in Westworld, right? It's truly out, out of my own control. It was insane. It was insane. <laughs> Long story cut short, I think Cantonese food is not necessarily dying, but I do know that I've been getting requests past year, especially uh, I met someone a couple weeks ago that said, hey, I just want a Cantonese restaurant on the west side of LA or someplace in New York. And I said, yeah, it's easier said than done because uh, I'm only familiar with a couple of the top Cantonese spots outside of Hong Kong. And I will say that even my friends that are in Hong Kong say Cantonese food is not necessarily as good as it was pre-handover, right? When British gave it back to China for whatever reasons, there are a lot. 
I think Cantonese food is very good in Australia, specifically Sydney, uh, Melbourne, very, very good in Richmond, the suburb of Vancouver. It's, it's, it's good, but not as good. It's different. The Chinese food in Markham, uh, in, in Ontario, which is unbelievably good in general for Chinese food. And it has great seafood, Fishman Lobster Clubhouse, et cetera. And some places in LA are pretty good, but that's pretty much the extent of great in Las Vegas. Las Vegas is sort of the library of Alexandria for uh, North American Chinese food. It's really holding on to some things that you just can't find anywhere else in America. And that all credits back to, say, Steve Wynn, who would fly in chefs for the Chinese whales that would come into the Bellagio back in the day. And the chef that he brought really trained the chef, the chefs that now run the Cantonese style restaurants that are in all the casinos, not all, but like three or four of them. But talking to the, I remember having a lot of conversation with the golden century family in, in Sydney. And they said, one of the issues really is finding cooks that were experienced and knew how to make Cantonese food. Mm -hmm. Because if you looked at the line, which I saw many times, they were definitely over a certain age group. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, you know, what was that movie where all the older dudes go to outer space with Clint Eastwood? Space Cowboys. Billy Bob Thorne? Space Cowboys. It's basically like Cantonese Cowboys. (laughs) Okay. Just a bunch of old walk cooks. Yeah. Old walk cooks with just giant arms, giant right arms, just massive, massive things. And it, it was... Not a, there was not very many young people in there. And I don't know the reason why, but I've heard this, that finding younger generation that wants to learn the older generation's ways of walk cookery is not easy to find anymore. Mm -hmm. And the main issue isn't that they don't want to open up more Cantonese restaurants. The two reasons are getting the quality of ingredients because so much of Cantonese food is the quality of ingredient because it's cooking so minimally. And I would say Cantonese food is probably my favorite Chinese style. And I, I dare say people can see it's sometimes even boring, right? But I don't think so. And the second reason is finding people that can execute that food. And I also don't, I don't think maybe the, the talent pool has decreased. I just don't think it's increased to the amount of Cantonese restaurants opening globally. That's another possible scenario. So I think overall finding high end, really good Cantonese restaurants are going to be on the decline specifically because of that. I, I, I fully agree. And I think with the, with the boring thing, I mean, I want to, I guess if people don't really understand what Cantonese food is, you know, like with the exception of Peking duck, which is from Beijing, you know, Cantonese food is responsible for all of like the iconic meat preparations in Chinese food. Right. So it's like the roast duck, chashu, barbecue pork, you know, the steamed fish with ginger and scallion, soy sauce, chicken, all the stuff you see if you go to a Chinese, you know, barbecue shop. And beyond that, there it's also responsible for fucking like like Harrison says, dim sum, yum cha, like all of that stuff. All of all of the like quintessential Chinese dishes come from this, and they seem simple in a way, right? Like a roast, a whole roasted pig. But to do it right, to get that like perfect the, the crispy pork belly. Dave and I screwed around with this in the kitchen a while back, but like. The crispy pork belly with the perfectly flat, sandy, crispy skin on top. Like, that is super challenging. There's not a lot else going on, 
but like doing it right is so 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 hard and i think only comes with you know generational knowledge so do you think it's suffering do you think cantonese food is suffering more from the kind of you know second generation third generation doesn't want to pick it up or than other cuisines or is it the same as anybody else I don't know. I mean, I feel like people would probably say, I could see the contrary. People say oh, Cantonese food is better than ever. It's, you have places like Mot 32, but truth be told, Mot 32 is not Cantonese food. No. Yeah. Mot 32 is a nightclub. <laughs> yes. A very successful nightclub. Yes. And they do have good food. Yeah. And we, we've had some great meals there, but it's, it's, uh, it's not like, I hear Mot 32 a bunch and I don't want to be a snob. But do you, when people are like, oh, Mot 32 is great. I am always like trying to be like, nah, no, I think Mot 32 is exactly the example of why they're the disappearing Cantonese restaurant. Right. So like it's, it's Cantonese maybe on its base level, but then it has all these other influences, right? Like Dave, Dave and I, our favorite thing to eat there is like the is a Sichuan dish made in a Cantonese style, but you would never, that's so not, good. But it's not, it's so good. It's so good, but it's not part of, they got a really good Peking duck. Yeah. Neither. They're both really good, but neither are Cantonese dishes. You know what I mean? So I think that's what happens. You know, I was thinking about one of our other favorite Chinese restaurants in the world, Flower Drum in, in Australia, in, in Melbourne. Uh, Melbourne? City. Melbourne. Melbourne. Uh, is Classic, classic, classic uh, institution. Institution. And everyone in, what I love about Melbourne is everyone in Melbourne thinks about dainty Sichuan. Not dainty. Excuse me. That's, that's Sichuan. Flower Drum. Mm-hmm. Like New Yorkers talk about Shunley Palace, except that mm-hmm. Shunley Palace is totally different than Flower Jump. <laughs> like Flower Jump is real deal. Shunley is real deal for American Chinese. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, Shunley is a fucking Jump. institution. Yeah, but it's it's the same thing, right? Where like uh, in, in Flower Drum in, in in Australia, you have. You know, Jason is the son who is taking over the restaurant from his father. His father is still in the kitchen every day. But like the next generation has to say, oh, you know what? Um, I think we need to sort of like meet people where they are. Like they they don't really just want Cantonese food. They walk in here. What if they say they want, you know, Sichuan food? What if they want a dish? You know, can we not do that? Can we not change the menu a little bit? So I think they're they're fighting that a little bit. I would say as a comp, and this is not perfect, so don't hold me to this. And both Chris and I. Chris knows more about this than I do. I'm just an eater and I know people that operate Cantonese restaurants. When I say eater, like I love Cantonese food and I like eating great Cantonese food at that. I'd say the comp to where Cantonese food might be. And again, don't hold me to this. I could be wrong, but I'm just thinking out loud here. I think there is a change in the American diner ecosystem. American diners. I would say the epitome of food. If it's not the steakhouse, it's the diner in America. And many of those diners are open 24 seven and they were the, really the community hubs for a lot of cities in America. A lot of diners are going out of business or changing from the 24 seven model because the younger generations that are inheriting them do not want to operate that way, or they want to get rid of the business because it's just too hard. It's not what they want to do. And I think it has more to do with the, generational shift than a desire to do anything else really and i also think a lot of the parents that operate or the old generation that operate these cantonese restaurants they don't want their kids to be cooks either and it's so hard so 
I don't know where we're going to go, but I do think it's harder than ever to find one. Yeah. I mean, do you think that, do you think there's a factor at play here? I'm just thinking about the, the technique and how hard it is to pull off these dishes. And again, this is, we're like a broken record, but like they're just undervalued. Like you would never expect to go to a restaurant where you could get a dish like poulard en vessie, right? The fucking chicken cooked in a bladder. <laughs> you would, that dish itself, you expect, oh, I have to wear a suit. I've got to go somewhere super fancy for this French preparation of this chicken cooked in a pig's bladder and then poached and whatever and cognac sauce and et cetera, et cetera. That dish is on, you know, the difficulty of a lot of these Cantonese dishes are a hundred percent on par with that dish. And you can walk into a Cantonese restaurant in shorts and a t-shirt and pay a fraction of what you would pay for that French one. You know, like it's a lot of work for less payoff. Can I say that one of the most difficult things to execute is a Chinese New Year Cantonese style dinner? Oh my God. Oh my God. I mean, oh my God. It's like a intricate novel because everything has to be intertwined. And it's like 4D chess in a way. You have to have dishes that taste good, but still sound like something meaningful in Chinese Cantonese, which is crazy. <laughs> that's 100%. Right? That's, that's such a... That's like, oh, man. I don't think people understand what you just said. But that is exactly 100% what it is. Like, I have to make a dish that tastes good. And oh, by the way, the ingredients of that dish and the name of that dish have to have special meaning and bring good fortune to me because they have to sound exactly like something else. It literally has to say like whatever the dish is, the, the characters can also mean like, I want to be rich. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. It's so crazy. It's a vegetable dish where like it has to be a play on words and delicious. So it's like, yeah. here's like my- the ingredients, the, the juxtaposition of the ingredients. It's like edible poetry, <laughs> but like, Right. It's like Wheel of Fortune. You know what it is? Cantonese New Year's dinner is like Wheel of Fortune. But instead of the letters, you're using ingredients and colors <laughs> to make a phrase. <laughs> to bring good fortune. It's so insane. New Year. Dude, that is, you, are, you, you nailed it exactly on the head. That is, that is right. And then, by the way, do it 16 times. And, eat, and <laughs> everybody's anticipating this progression, right? And the colors have to match. I'm like, why does it have to be this way? Because you can't have it this way and this way. This crab has to have all this white and a sh- another shade of white and just a little bit of green. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> this has to have three different right. color that's shades that's of white. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> right. Because oh, why does it have to do this? Oh, because in the fifth century, money looked like this. And it has to look the exact same as the money used to look in the fifth century. And when I had an understanding of that, my mind was like, oh, my God. Chinese food, Cantonese style, is just cooking on a level that I don't even understand. I literally don't even understand. And everything has meaning and context and subtext. It's crazy. So to find a cook just to make a New Year's meal, who's going to do that? Yeah. Who's going to do that? Who wants to do that? Which is totally, totally, totally. The answer is nobody. <laughs> I mean, nobody. Nobody wants to. And even if they can, they're, yeah, it's, it's totally bananas, which is, right. which is very sad. So smoke while you got them. Go eat up all the Cantonese food you can. We'll take a break. 
All right, let's get into a moif. What we got, you know? All right, guys. Uh, actually, let's kick it off with like, what's your temple like Cantonese seafood dish? So if you're if you're doing a banquet, what's your first choice that you want to be on the table guaranteed? Uh, I mean, I, it's never it's never a constant, honestly. I think that uh, gotta take a look at the tanks. <laughs> gotta take a look at what's in the seafood tanks first and foremost. What's the first course? What's your what's your go to seafood course? Oh, again, I'm gonna just say this, even though it's not. I think it's back. They opened up a, a some small branch or something. I can get it in, in a different format. Like it's like a a stall now or a food stand in a shopping mall, but golden century. I've talked about it many times. Their exo pippies on crispy noodles is makes me weep. I've eaten that dish more than any dish in the world. I think I really do. And it is the, it's a very localized dish. And what that's what I love. It's not trying to be something crazy authentic, but it is being authentic by using local ingredients and doing it in a way that is specific to them with very authentic Cantonese techniques. And you take pippies, which are sort of um, a soft shell clam, almost colored purple, like very beautiful clams, very small, triangular, and they're exo sauce and this crispy noodle, which is more of a, like a vermicelli. And they fry that into a, like a roasty, like a pie of noodles. And they saute in the wok the, the these pippies and the exo sauce, and they pour it over in the noodles. And it's just this textural combination. It's heat, it's sweet, it's salty, it's totally sublime. And while that's not a standard Cantonese dish for my first seafood course, that's what I would want on my deathbed. Yeah. That's the dish I want. <clears throat> it's like you cannot, you cannot replicate this very specific dish from Golden Century. I think it's like spiritually related to the liang mian huang which is it, which is like the you know fried nest of, of 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 noodles that they pour like a seafood gravy or 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 meat and vegetables on top that dave and i have talked about a lot where like you know the pro moves you go for the saturated piece in the center and let the let the rookies take the crispy dry ones on the outside it's that dish but like you said Crafted so that every bite is the perfect one <laughs> with like a sauce soaked crispy noodle. What's your, what's your, what's your, uh, I mean, generally speaking, if we're doing like a, a Chinese banquet, if we're doing a Cantonese style banquet, then, you know, I have to, I have to abide by Chinese lunar new year rules and get certain dishes. So you have to get a fish, you have to get a steamed fish. But, uh, you know, I've been, I've been, we, we went there, we, I've been eating a taste of MP over in Monterey park. and. um They'll have spot prawns all the time. And I just will order a plate of spot prawns that are just steamed with like a, a garlicky soy dipping sauce. Let's be honest. Do you go there by yourself? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe you can get a banquet room for one. <laughs> all right. Next. All right. So we're going to get into eating versus dining real quick. Um, so what's the difference between eating at a four star or three star or two star and one star restaurant? Like, can you guys like think, think about it in your heads? Like, is there a difference between these experiences and how you should approach it? 
I would say the best comp for me, and, uh, you know, we can talk about the stars another day, you know, and, and get in specifics, but eating and dining, I would say dining is the equivalent of watching a movie or reading a book that you don't want to read, but you have to. Sometimes when you are reading that book, it is engrossing and you want to finish it and it's compelling and you're like, whoa, and you got to tell everybody, right? And, and, and what I mean by that is Infinite Jest is a dining book. Some people are going to be really in it and they're going to have two bookmarks and they're going to be like, yeah, Howling Phantoms. Ah. <laughs> yeah. And most of anybody else would be like, well, that's stupid. Why, why does it have to be that difficult? I don't want to read that. Give me Clive Klesser. Give me Tom Clancy. That is eating. Okay. That's the, 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 the literary equivalent of eating. You're just like, give me the, uh, or TV. It's like real housewives, Kardashians. That's eating. You're just like, feed me. And I'm not even hungry, but feed me. Right. I, I, I don't think that. <laughs> Uh, okay, so eating is Clancy, dining is David Foster Wallace. I think <laughs> I don't know why this is in my mind. I want to go to. Top... I didn't mean to say all male authors, by the way. So just go make some fucking. It's fine. It's, it's Tony Morrison. And yeah. It's okay. Eating is Top Golf. I will do that with my friends who just want to hang out and whack balls and drink beer. Dining is going to Augusta. I only want to do that with friends who will appreciate it. I will take my, I'll go there with my wife who doesn't appreciate golf because she'll think it's beautiful, but I'd really rather be there with my friends <laughs> who like, I don't want to dine a, with people who aren't going to, who aren't pros. Well, I think that's a different angle. That's you're talking about dining and eating as the experience. I think I'm talking about the, the actual consumption of it. I see. I think it's both very valid points. You eat for fuel and you dine for your mind. One, one is you're feeding your stomach and your your just yes. necessity. The other is literally the luxury. It's ultimately a fucking luxury. Yes. Yes. Right. Which is why during the pandemic you just went away. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why we just ate for three years. <laughs> well, I remember like I talked to a senator when all that shit was happening, and she was like, "Yeah, we're just concerned about the food ports and the." How to get food and deliver food. We don't give a fuck <laughs> about fine dining. Restaurants and dining. Yeah, we're not worried yeah. about that. How you manipulate food, they don't, that doesn't matter. So I think one is sustenance and eating. And the other one is feeding your mind. One's feeding your gut. The other one's feeding your mind. And clearly feeding your mind is not nearly as important. Mm -hmm. Just look at our world today. <laughs> Nobody's very hungry minds out there, guys. Very hungry minds. All right. Well, going on to the next part. Uh, so what are some of the most ambitious restaurants when it comes to dining in the following cities? Let's start with L.A. It's Providence. And that's it. And listen, I know that Anaka, people say Anaka. I think it's great. And Nikki's great. But for my money, the the. It is up there. It's certainly in that tier two of super ambitious, trying to be elegant and finesseful. But for my money, the only tier one in Los Angeles is Providence because of the originality, the execution. And um, 
I, I just think it's the only three. Let me just, I think Providence is truly the only three Michelin star restaurant in Los Angeles. And I know they offer, they said there's a, like a, a some resort in San Diego's got three Michelin stars, but I think in LA proper, I think Providence is the only three Michelin star restaurant. And there's no knock to any of the other restaurants uh, that have two stars. But I think for my judgment, I would say Providence is having been to many, many three Michelin star restaurants. I think that Providence is a three Michelin star restaurant. Unquestionably, so, right. yes, because of the combination of ambition and luxury, right? It's, and it's ingredients. Everything is soigné, man. It's so, 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 so nice. I mean, do you? I mean, in terms of ambition, though, do you give credit to Vespertine on the just ambition front of craziness? Yes, yeah. I do. I mean, it is the most insane. It's a very insane restaurant. Yeah, but I. I don't know if that kind of dining will ever be appreciated in America. Yeah. And it's unfortunate, Agreed. you know? Agree. But if you haven't been, you should go because it's, it's something you should try at least once in your life. All right. Next city. Let's try a uh, Bay Area, SF, Napa, that area. Oh, Chris Yang, you're, you're, I mean, it sounds like it. We're, we're a broken record here, but I listen, SF Bay area has been home to an inordinate amount of three stars. You know, there was that period of time where you had, uh, Atelier, Kren and, and Bennu and Qua and Cezanne all <laughs> in San Francisco going at the same time, you know, again, with all credit to everybody, Corey. Bennu is is like the most most ambitious. You know, you have the laundry up in Napa and things like that, but but Corey is just is when we talk about ambition and pushing and continuing to to push the envelope while maintaining that same sort of balance as Providence, where it's ultra luxurious, ultra, ultra, ultra soigne plus ambition and attention to detail and yeah, Bennu. And really, it, it is. I think that high-end dining in San Francisco is the best in America. And it should have been. But it wasn't when, 15 years ago, it wasn't the case. You, you guys can argue with Dave all you want. but And I'm not saying all these restaurants opened and became three stars because you said that. But before... No, said- that is clearly not... I don't want anyone pull quoting a bullshit eater or whatever the fuck. No, I'm not. I was just like, part of it was a joke. Needed a little bit of a wake up to say, because I I remember I was cooking in that era and I was like, man, everywhere I go is the same, same dishes, same farms, same everything. And, you know, then there was the, a a amazing golden period of fine dining in the barrier. It was outrageous. And, you know, it's still, you know, I saw, I I, I drove by um, when I was up there this summer, I drove by Kyle and Katina Connaughton's single throw. They have their own farm and like, that's why the Bay Area, and when, when Dave, I think when you say like, they should have the best, they should have the best fine dining is like. That's what I said 15 plus years ago. It's like the best dining in the world should happen in the Bay Area. Nowhere else do you have access like this kind of connection between like product and, and restaurant. Like, of course it should be the best. And income. And income level. And people, and yeah, an audience who can afford to pay for it. So. And a city that has historically championed progressiveness in sexuality, politics, technology, music, and visual arts. That was my argument. <laughs> it just got truncated into figs on a plate. Yeah, um, I, I think it's, I think it's Corey and, and do credit to everybody. I think, but, but I, I agree with Corey. I mean, clearly, you know, being trying to be objective here, Corey is the greatest 
most talented technical chef we've ever had and one of the most original minds. So I'm biased, but I think what he's done is remarkable. And he's been that way ever since I, you know, heard about him cooking in New York City. Um, I wrote that forward to his cookbook and I mean every word of it. In this industry, everyone talks shit about every single fucking chef and cook. I've never heard one person ever talk shit about Corey Lee, <laughs> ever. And if here's the thing, if somebody was talking shit about them, I would stop my conversation and go, so go fuck yourself. You're, you're a fucking <laughs> hack motherfucker. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And that's like the kind of respect that he, 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 he commands. And he knows that and he doesn't ever flaunt it, but it's, it's, it's a, it's an amazing thing that he's born and bred. And I'm proud that American could call him his own, but I think that his food is really unique and different. And, um, it's very hard to have a point of view that's not like anyone else's. And I haven't been to Dominic Cran, but I've seen her food and I know it's one of the best restaurants, but for me, I choose Spanuel. Quince, I've been there. It's again, awesome. But I, I feel like I can, again, I don't want to, this sounds terrible. I'm not trying to say I can get that experience elsewhere because it's unique and they're best in class restaurants. But I, I sort of can, you know what I mean? Not really, but no, I, 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 I listen, and this, there's no, listen, way if, I got a, if I got a reservation at any of those restaurants, I'm like, fucking amazing. Let's go. But I, I, please, I'm not trying to say that. I'm just, I understand. I'm trying to parse out that. I'm, I'm just saying I prefer Bennu, but I'd also say single thread is right up there. And the French laundry is one of the best dining experience you could ever fucking have too. So I, I, I don't know, but I would say t- high end dining is best. I would probably say my favorite restaurant was Saison when Josh Keynes was there, but it's, he's not there. Yes. In terms of, in terms of fucking dining experiences, man, some of the best times ever. Uh, I, you know, it's impossible by the sound, but I know what you're trying to say, Chang, but, Frankly, and I don't want this to sound like it's just because it's an Asian thing, but like Bennu changed the whole fucking conversation. <laughs> so like you, with all respect to to Quince and to to everywhere else there, and they don't need us to talk about them. They're fucking packed. They're packed, you know. And so, but but what what Corey forged at Bennu? We're, we're all talking about again the best chefs, some of the best chefs in the world, having three Michelin star restaurants that deserve all of the accolades. I'm just saying for my money, if I had to choose one, I would choose that. I'd probably choose single thread second. I think when Meadowood was there, right, right was, you know, right there. But I think the popular favorite is unequivocally the French laundry because it, you know, it sort of set the standard. Yeah, for sure. But that's, that's the Bay Area. All right. Moving on to Chicago. I've only been to Alinea once. Um, and I, I, I think that when L2O was there, I think I probably would have said that to when Laurent Gras. Laurent Gras is the only chef that has three, no, four, three mission star restaurants. He did Guy Savoie, He did Plaza Athene. He did L2O. And then he did, no, just three different. He's the only chef to win like three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks, basically. <laughs> And I would say L2O because when we did back in the day, we did a dinner with L2O when Laurent was there and it was the most, most intense prep I've ever been part of. And I thought Laurent Gras is, he's French, but he is, he's on that rare list of people that may not know who he is, but arguably one of the greatest chefs of all time. And if you're in the industry and you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
Yeah. And but by L2 way, has been closed for many years. By the way, San Francisco Bay Area, we had Laurent Groff, and we didn't treasure him. Yeah, at the fifth floor. Yeah. You've had a lot of great chefs. The fifth floor has been a nice. You're, you're fucking, you're not kidding when you, like, for all the. Marissa Perillo was there. Fifth floor has been a great cultivator of talent in San Francisco. God, here's how you just know. Here's why people who, who my, my Bay Area brethren who are like, how come you never stand up for the Bay Area when Dave is talking shit? He's at least talking shit and knows what he's talking about. <laughs> like, you, you know the fucking material. You're not just saying. Shit. Oh, the, I know that. I know that. I know that the, the culinary team that opened up the fifth floor. God, Junior is the exact sous chef. Junior used to be the sous chef for WD at Seventy One Clinton. I know all the stories. Yeah, unbelievable. Um. So yeah, I, listen, San Francisco. Well, going back to this Chicago, I think the only place you need to go, and I, I don't. I'm not up to date on everything in Chicago. I think there's so many restaurants that I'd want to visit. Number one, uh, all the Paul Cajon, Donnie media restaurants are fantastic. There's a lot of great restaurants. Chicago is one of the best eating towns. It just is. But for three mission starred, I think Alinea to me is the, if I had one night to eat, it would probably be Alinea. Mm-hmm. There's just like, not even a question about that. Yeah. It's gotta be. It's gotta be Grant and Alinea. New York. We're gonna do New York and then move on. Yeah, New York seems tough. What do you say? Again, another city where you have to be like everybody is amazing. But what is what is the what, who is the flag bearer? This is hard. Hmm. Um, there are a lot of great restaurants. Some of the world's very best restaurants. You know, and. They're easy to sort of name off. La Bernadette, John George, Danielle. You know, this goes on and on. In the past year, you got Teresi and, and Tatiana. I, I, trying to phrase my words so I don't get in trouble. New York, I think if you listen to the Alex Dupac podcast, um, we had him on a couple weeks ago. It will make a lot more sense what I'm talking about. It's not that there's not greatness. There's absolutely greatness in New York, but I think we've lost the ability to control our narrative about what kind of food uh, is Vanguard boundary pushing. Mm-hmm. And for example, LA has um, Jordan Kahn's restaurant, Vespertine, which is so fucking out there. It's hard to comprehend. <laughs> But I love it. I, I'm so happy that it exists. Um, we, I just don't know if New York has that. Okay. It might have it to a smaller degree, and I don't know it. And there's a lot of great young chefs. I won't say chefs. Chefs that are opening up their first restaurants. But I feel like right now New York is in the – and again, I don't want to say new. There's clearly new things happening. I mean, Tatiana is one of those restaurants. But I, I'm saying – like WD-50 right. for me, right? That kind of restaurant. So, so let me ask you, you know, this. Alinea should be, Alinea should be in yes. New York City. So, so let me ask you this question because my head went to WD-50 as well. And, and obviously WD-50 having to close is one of the you know, most tragic closings in, in restaurant history. But I guess my question is, 
I know why you're having trouble saying this because like New York is home to greatness, but is New York the most fertile? Is New York the type of city or is New York a city that encourages or engenders the kind of restaurant you're talking about right now? The sort of no. boundary pushing thing. No, we're, we're in the comfort uh, extravaganza decadence uh, phase. Um, where it is about to me, it's very similar to like post Union Square Cafe 1988 hmm. in New York City, hmm. um, where things seem to be new, but it's it was like ten years of what you know. Danny Meyer did better than well, he really invented it that idea of enlightened hospitality. And no offense, the food was good, but it wasn't like holy fuck. It was the service. It was the ambiance. It was the whole shebang that elevated that experience that made it casual and all of these things. Gramercy Tavern was like a real swing yeah. at the time. It made the cover of New York Magazine. I was like, is this the next great restaurant? Four stars. And it got the shit kicked out of it, right? The first reviews are two stars. and it, But it just shows you that more often than not, the reviews are wrong and greatness sort of happens. And like, I don't know. I mean, it's possible that I like Teresi or Tatiana. That's like this, this decades at Gramercy Tavern. I don't know. Let me, let me try this on you. Cause I think about, I think about the, the kind of innovations, the things that have shifted the entire world of food that have originated in New York. And listen, Momofuku being one of them. Is New York actually a place where, whether it's music, art, or food, where the ground swells of change that are created in New York actually come from the lower end and trickle upward? Whether it's punk or fucking Basquiat or Momofuku, like innovation starts at the street level. I I can say that's not like, I mean, I moved to New York in 99, so it's not the same as it was then. I think Manhattan is a fundamentally different place than it was pre-pandemic. Um, I think a lot of the outer boroughs are cooler, right? The, so Williamsburg was always like, everyone's like, oh, this is peak Williamsburg, but no, it's not. And the outer boroughs from Brooklyn Heights to Red Hook to Flushing to Bushwick, you, you name it, uh, Crown Heights, they're better food opening up in Brooklyn and Queens. Mm. And there was always good food. It's just that now people, because of remote work, they don't have to go to the city. So a lot of the restaurants aren't condensed in Manhattan. Anymore. There's no reason for it to be. Mm-hmm. That's changed dining forever. I think not forever for the next few years, maybe forever in New York city. I, I don't know. So there's better food than ever before. There's better restaurants than ever before. Clearly to eat in New York, it's awesome. I view this, I don't know. I, I I don't want to say anything that makes anyone mad. I'm not. I'm just more of, I don't know how it, how we got here. Mm. You know, um, there was that stretch where there was a lot of groundbreaking, boundary pushing things that were happening. Um, you know, Jose's opening up his stuff, but, you know, Jose's not doing the groundbreaking shit that he did. And a lot of that stuff was the from the lineage of LBE, right? So I don't know what to tell you, mm. right? It's 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 
It's in a weird, I don't want to say weird. People love it. I don't live there anymore. So I'm not trying to say that in a negative way. I just think it's not what it was. And that doesn't mean it's a bad thing at all. I'm just saying it's not what it was. What I can say definitively is New York did not embrace anything that was modern. Mm. And that's a shame. That's all I wanted to say. If there's a pull quote, don't fucking, <laughs> you motherfuckers. This is all I'm saying is that eating in New York is great. The one thing I will definitively say is that New York City never embraced any modern cuisine. I haven't been to Misha yet. But I think Alex being that, Rob Stupak's one of the very few people to do it. And people, he's, the Trojan horse is in tacos and sort of uh, American comfort food, new American comfort food. So he's being subversive in his own ways. But I guess for me, I just don't know anyone that's doing anything quite subversive mm-hmm. and trying to fuck shit up, mm-hmm. basically. And it just doesn't exist, quite frankly. Did it ever? Probably not. I always wondered what it was like to be sitting there on stage with you when you made that figs on a plate comment. And I feel like I'm living it a little bit right now. <laughs> Sorry, New York. Well, well no, I, I, you, what do you think? Do you think people are going to get mad? This pull quote? I, I think that, I think that the, I think people are going to miss I, I think there's a, I don't want people to misinterpret you and, and think you're saying like, there's no restaurant of the quality of Bennu or Alinea or Providence in New York. That is not what you were saying at all. But when it comes, no. it's like a certain, it's just, it's, it's a. No, and I, I can say that too. It's like Providence is very different in LA. And I think it's the best restaurant in LA by far, by far, but it's not like, it's a, got a very distinct point of view. And it is, is it, is it, is it a finesseful world-class restaurant? Absolutely. New York has that in space, right? We have that restaurant where it's, Everything's Swanye, everything's best in class. We have restaurants that are grand and, you know, Cafe Blue's opening up again by Danielle. Like French food is like back in, in a lot of ways. Like, I'm not saying that it's not that. What I'm trying to say is we have those restaurants. We again have them in space. We have Italian food. But what we don't have is anything that is trying to be iconoclastic. Well, can I, can I throw one out to you that you've maybe highlighted before and ask you if this fits the mold? What about what about in the sushi world? Is New York carving out a very specific kind of new, like you you pointed to what is it? Shuko is that the one you talked about? Like um, I love Shuko, yeah. But are they carving out something new in terms of what American sushi? No, because is? I'm quite. I mean, again, I'll just say it. People never. People love Shuko. There's no reason for me to promote it. It's, it's one of the hardest reservations to get. But I don't know if people quite understood the blend and creativity and the point of view, quite frankly, of what they were doing there and still doing. Yeah. You know, um, it is a new, it's, it's as, a, it's, there's no sushi experience like that in the world that I can think of. And maybe there is, but not at the quality and the execution. Is it traditional? No, not at all. But is it American? Yes. And I think for me, I'm just looking for the new, the new, new. I understand how loaded that is because you can say like, well, the new is maybe voices that just haven't been heard or restaurants that haven't had the chance to open up yet. Yes, those are distinctly new. 
But at the same time, like, I don't know how to express it. I feel like, I don't want to say this is New York. I would say this is a global, global thing that's happening. Mm -hmm. Which is why, again, on this podcast with Stupac, we were talking about that it was a bubble. And the things that we cared about, no one ever actually cared about. So ultimately, I'm saying the reason why I'm having a hard time explaining any of this is because what I gave a shit about did not matter at all. And maybe I'm having this like this nostalgia that no one else quite understands. Because quite frankly, when I talk to everyone else in New York, they're like, this is awesome. It's better than ever before. <laughs> you know? No, I, I and, and again, like I'm, I'm, I'm taking out my restaurants and, and we have a, you know, evolving philosophy of what we want to do at Momo. And, and I'm not part of the day to day, but like, I'm just trying to be objective. If you're looking, um, there are a lot of Korean things happening. Korean restaurants. You have some um, Chinese American restaurants. That is, again, I'm not at all. I, I'm, I, I'm sort of mad at myself because I don't know how to articulate it. I am not trying to diminish. There's so many restaurants I want to eat at. There's so many fucking amazing chefs opening it. I just don't know if New York is the fucking new, new anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know if people, for a long time, I think people look to New York for the new. And I just don't know if that's the case. And that has less to do with New York and more to do with New York itself, that it just pushed out a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of the artists, a lot of the young, younger, struggling artists, it doesn't have to be in just food, the creative sort of class. A lot of people left to open up in, you know, other cities in America. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Gavin Kaysen moving to Minnesota. Yeah. I, I, I think that, um, I hear you. I think what you're saying, and, and I, I want to make this clear for everybody listening, is this is not about the chefs or the cooks or the restaurants themselves. This is the circumstance, the context, and probably the audience to some extent. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's, I don't know. Like, when I go to New York, I want to eat a Bernadette. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, I, want, I want that. I want to taste the saucier stuff they have working on. I want to taste the green peppercorn hormone sauce, right? I do think that repair and the whole team there, they are the best. They make the best sauces in the world. And I, I stand firmly behind that. Um, so no, I, I always get worried about pull quotes and some stupid motherfucker, you know, saying this, but I have nothing but love, but I don't think this is just a New York issue. This is an everywhere issue. And, um, but when I do compare it to say San Francisco, Banu has a singular point of view and a groundbreaking perspective on things that is unique and new. That's not necessarily fair to anyone in New York. I understand that because everybody that is working on their own restaurants and getting it started, they have their own unique point of view and their belief in it as well. And, and by, the, just, by the way, when we talked about Corey or we talked about any of these other cities, you also pointed out that all of these innovators came from New York originally. They all they all worked in New York to start too. So, so no, I mean, like I, I just can't think of the one restaurant. I mean, Brooklyn Fair is now closed. I probably would have said Brooklyn Fair, uh, but that's not in a very new thing either, right? Like I almost put Brooklyn Fair in like Providence. You have two chefs that have been doing it for so long, and 
you know, Cesar and Chirmusti, they've, they've reached a level of knowing exactly what they want and subtracting everything else and finding what is great to them. And, you know, for both of those chefs, it's Japan and both of those chefs Mm -hmm. are, you know, wizards with fish, but they also have a different interpretation and uh, nuance uh, 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 of understanding. So it's, to me, like that's very, they're very similar restaurants, you know, except Brooklyn fair was, was like, Three X more expensive, <laughs> but sushi's there is amazing. I, I think it's the best time ever to eat sushi. Unfortunately, it's you know cost prohibitive for most people because it's around a thousand dollars a person, eight hundred to a thousand dollars a person for a five to six seat restaurant. Good luck getting a reservation, um, and that's become commonplace. So I, I think I guess Chris, what I, I to rephrase it, what I think New York is lost is not the top and best of. Because it has that. Yeah. What it has lost is the ability to fuck up and make mistakes and to fail and take wild swings. There's a restaurant that Helen Rosner just reviewed, and Jorge, who's the co-chef there, used to work for me, and it's it's in Brooklyn. And on paper, it sounds like a crazy ass idea. Mm-hmm. I'm so proud of him and what those guys are doing. I'm so glad it got well reviewed. Jorge, uh, I don't know his co-founder. Fucking an awesome dude, great chef. I love, we need more of that. And unfortunately, to do more of that, which is untraditional, non-traditional, you're going to crash and burn a lot of time. That Cafe Mars, I think, embodies a lot of the experience that I would like to see more of, which you see a lot more in, Cities where it's not as prohibitive to try something new. And it doesn't have to be fine dining. You know what I mean? Like Pija Palace here in LA, Mm -hmm. I haven't been yet. That's a, that's just a crazy concept. Mm -hmm. An Indian sports bar, Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't have to be super high end snobbery either. It just, it can be done in a, any way. It's a unique point of view. That goes against the grain to some degree. And I feel that New York almost always had that happening. That goes all the way back, at least for me, to Rocco de Spirito when he opened up Union Pacific, Hmm. which was really in line with a lot of things, but against the grain because it was so far ahead of what everyone was doing. And it influenced whole generations of chefs because that was a finishing school for a lot of guys that wound up working for Jean George or working for Wiley or, you know, so on and so forth, or boulet. Different time, different era. So again, it's also a sign of me being older because I'm sure if I talked to someone that was maybe younger and living in you know Brooklyn, they'd be like, dude, this this it's it's a pop-up that's happening here. You just don't know about it. And like they're, you know, we were f- talking about some this other, you're bartering food. So you got to bring, you got to make a ceramic pot to bring it over. And then you're going to get the best meal of your life right? in the back alley of this street over here. Right. You know, Anna Jack Thai in LA has the taco Tuesdays and it's outside like that kind of contradiction and juxtaposition of things that shouldn't go together. Fucking love that shit. And right now to me, I guess my biggest complaint about New York and New York, not just New York, everything, everything makes too much fucking sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? 
And I don't blame anybody for playing it safe. Fuck, we're playing it safe. Like, it's just too expensive to fuck up now. Yeah. And I think without the process of failure, without that constant sort of churn of failure, of, of ambition and trying to do something new, even if it sounds like a terrible idea, I think things get stale. I, I mean, I 100% feel you. I, but, you know, I mean, it, it ebbs and flows, and hopefully we're just in a, in a low tide right now. I mean, I remember. I, I'd also tell you, I'm, I'm dead wrong. I mean, what Brooks Heedley is doing at, at Security Burger is clearly like that's, there are people doing it. And I'm I'm sure I have friends that are going to be like, fuck you, man. We're doing it. I know you are. So if you're listening, you're like, fuck you, Dave. Like, yeah, fuck me. I just can't think of everything off the top of my head. You know why? Because I've been up since 2.30 because my fucking kids right, let me ask are you, sick. Let me ask you to zoom so, out before we move on from this. Let me ask you to zoom out because I'm thinking about the country as a whole now. Because, you know, like, okay, whether or not New York has the new new right now, whatever, the country as a whole has a lot of stuff going on. Per capita countries. Per capita. What are the top five countries that have, uh, in terms of boundary-pushing, forward-thinking chefs and restaurants per capita? Like San Francisco. No, as in terms of the world, like the United States as a whole is the United States have a per capita. We have a lot of boundary pushing restaurants as a country versus say, no, we don't not boundary pushing anymore. I mean, because we we, there's just not like I'm sure Grant and Nick would agree. Like Alinea today is very different than Alinea when it opened up 20, almost 20 years. ago. It's much more about the experience Mm -hmm. of, of experiential cooking. And I think they're one of the foremost practitioners of that. And it's not, I don't know. I, I don't know. What the, I don't know. Maybe I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Yeah, I guess we could talk about this forever. and I'm going in circles, but. Because I was just thinking like for a while there, you know, obviously with Renee and Christian and all these guys, like. Denmark had a high per capita number of like boundary pushing restaurants. But like that's a bubble. Yeah, I know, but small country, big effect. I mean, it's, it's, it's it, I mean, it would be, you know, Basque region. Mm-hmm. Um, per capita. Yeah. Big outsized yeah. influence. Barcelona. Right. Um, and again, it doesn't have to be modern in the traditional sense of modern gastronomy. It can be something like, I think what, again, Brooks is doing at the old, uh, God, I can't remember the old diner that was in, an Alphabet City on Avenue A, is, is, is exactly that. You know, it's that kind of one of the world's best pastry chefs becoming a vegan chef, vegetarian chef, opening up his second restaurant. Moving Spirit Burger into an iconic location, and it just doesn't make any sense. It's a beautiful thing, and I guess I just want things to make a little bit less sense, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So, yeah, and I apologize if you're listening and you're like, "Fuck, I'm doing it." I'm sorry, I don't know, and it's also a good chance that I'm just older and I don't live in New York anymore. But this is just. I still talk to a lot of my friends there. Uh, I still visit it quite frequently, but I'm not trying to go out to eat cool shit anymore either. Yeah. All right. Was this depressing? 
No, I think I think in your I mean, frankly, in your sort of roundup just then, you shouted out a bunch of people doing interesting stuff. Yeah, I, I, I they're all doing. I, I don't know. I'll, it's not just New York; it's everywhere. Let me say this though. I will say this. I have not been to Teresi. I've not been to the new Superiority Burger. I've not been to Tatiana. New York, for whatever you want to say, has more restaurants that I want to visit than any other city in the country right now. I'll say that. Yeah. But there's an air of... I think there was a stretch where people were trying cool, ridiculous shit. And that level of experimentation is now just cost prohibitive to do. So it's nobody's fault. It's just the way it is. And right now, after the pandemic, um, you know, hopefully we'll be this way for a while. I don't blame anybody that wants something that's comforting and experiential, right? And the experiential could just be like going to Balthazar or just going to Mineta Tavern or just getting a fucking really good burger at your diner. They want something that's comforting and non-challenging. I think what Stu Pack said about New York versus Chicago was something that was staring me right in the face, but I didn't know because I didn't live in Chicago. The reason why Chicago embraced modern gastronomy was simply because New York City doesn't have kitchens. People have to cook. If you live in New York City, you have to eat out. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't have to, but for 8 million plus people, I would say half, 4 million people like eat out almost every night. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, because it's New York, and if you live in New York, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's cheaper to buy food that's made and to cook it at home. Just the way groceries are in Manhattan and the size of your kitchen space and stuff like that. So like going out to dinner is a, it's like, it's just a commoditized thing. Now, and I remember talking to Plotniki, he would go to Boulay like every fucking week. People do go to La Bernadette. I know this. Three, four, five times a week. That's insane. People eat at Danielle every lunch. All right. I know because I cook for some of those fuckers, you know, at Cafe Blue. They, like, every day they're eating, you know. So it's normal to go out to eat and to have a great meal and to have it somewhat catered to you. In Chicago, people eat at home. I cook so much more at home simply because I have a kitchen. I have space now in, in LA. And I thought it was an extremely lucid point by Alex is that when you go out to eat in Chicago, the reason why diners are more accepting of it is because they need it. Mm-hmm. They need the show. They need the spectacle. And New York just never needed it. Mm. And, you know, I, I think a lot of this ties back to Wiley and, and I, whether he 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 is he is my my Oppenheimer. <laughs> you know? Yeah. He's my Robert J. Oppenheimer. Yeah. Because like I love everything he's done and I love everything he stood for, and I still does, still do. And we're gonna have him on one of our recipe clubs. But and I don't mean that in a negative way, but like he really sacrificed everything to like give us a creative spark. And the city was just like, eh. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And now he doesn't get any of the credit for bringing it over. 
People talk about sous vide cooking all the time. You know who popularized it? Wiley fucking Dufresne. <laughs> He's on the fucking forward of the most important sous vide cookbook, the first one by the Roca brothers in the English translation. I had both. Uh, so it's like, you know, like, to me, there's a, a bittersweetness to it all that we we had a chance, but that's why I guess I wrestle with with what you know Alex was talking about too. It's like, did it even matter? And were we just fucking masturbating? Probably, you know. But at the end of the day, you know, what got me in trouble when I said figs on a plate was I felt that the Bay Area, specifically like San Francisco, should be the greatest place in the world to eat because there's no access, no better access in America to the quality of produce, the the wealth that was there. Also, it has been the most groundbreaking historically in art, sexuality, politics, music, you know, and and food. And at one point, it took us and me some time to realize just how revolutionary what Alice was doing, um, that it was so punk rock, it became the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And all I all I said was like, yes, could I have said it better if I wasn't fucking shit-faced and I blame Tony for that? Yeah, but <laughs> they caused waves. And I think in a positive way, could I have been less obnoxious about it? Yes. Would I say the same shit today? Eh, <laughs> debatable. That's gross, dude. <laughs> but it was, I think I thought it was true. And it's not that anymore. San Francisco is doing the most groundbreaking, like not groundbreaking per se, but like excellence at a level that it was not doing before with the exception of say, maybe a Michael Tusk and a Keller, right? And now there's a whole host of people. And I got fucking destroyed for saying that, mainly because I was so obnoxious about it. I understand. Because <laughs> um, I was right. Well, I mean, you, you, <laughs> like, listen, the people who agreed with you were, I mean, like Patterson agreed with you. He was probably pushing the envelope more than anybody else. So like. And talk about someone that got fucking hosed for trying to do innovative stuff. My God. Um, Qua was so good. Um, and it's not, so I guess I'm not feeling it's not the same thing. And I'm, I'm just trying to imagine there's a whole host of restaurants that I'm not thinking of and great uh, creative endeavors that are happening. Probably restaurants that are, with the, I guess for me, the reason what I'm saying is now just talking this out loud with you and I'll shut the fuck up and we can move on. My concern really isn't the fact that there aren't people that are trying to do something amazing. Even our, our, our dear friend Anoop is opening up Strange Delights in Brooklyn, you know, in Fort Greene. It's going to be awesome. Nobody loves oysters and New Orleans style seafood more than him. So he's taking a giant risk in doing something and I cannot wait to support it. My concern, too, is not just the exodus. While there is some, there's always going to be talent. New York City is always going to be the fucking best city. I think with the recent review of Misha and people getting not understanding it, it's a great restaurant. It's busy and you should go. But like it's. I don't think people see the complexity behind it. And that's that that's what scares me. Right. They don't see all the work that Alex and the team are doing at Misha. And I think for me, my biggest concern is. Will the environment and the people that are potentially the gatekeepers ever see the people that are trying to push the envelope currently? Mm -hmm. And are they going to 
give them the oxygen they need to grow mm-hmm. and give them enough of a leeway where if they make a mistake and a total dud of a dish or they have a really bad semester in cooking, they see what they're trying to do. They see that it's a diamond in the rough. That's all I'm asking. Yeah. And I love that shit, man. I want, I want every city, especially New York, to just be fucking gangbusters. And the reality is, it is. Everybody I talk to says, it's fucking awesome. <laughs> so what the fuck do I want to talk about? I'll shut the fuck up. Ying, I wish you could join us for another pod, but you got to get going. We'll get on a regular cadence again, but we are doing other things than podcasts. Can you tell them quickly what you're working on? Some TV shows, some books? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that we can, without teasing too much, Dave and I are going to be writing a few cookbooks. That's happening for realsies. You know, a lot of capturing everything that's going on in the studio, which, by the way, we have a ton of you know videos launching. We're going to have... YouTube and, and LG, our, our channel on there is going. We've got a bunch of television pitches and uh, a few other surprises that I have to be working on that relate to TV that I can't talk about yet. But suffice to say, we are going a million miles an hour. And it's been an especially crazy two weeks, which is why Dave has recorded so much um, just between you know some obligations he has and, and ringer staffers being out. But we will get on a regular cadence. I, I I miss being able to do this with Dave all the time, but uh, you know, I'll be here. And I'm going to close you out with something I dislike. I'm going to make a declarative statement here. I think drivers of the LA area are the worst drivers in the fucking world. The worst fucking drivers. And I can't take it anymore. They don't know how to drive. They're so fucking bad at driving. And sometimes I'm like, oh, maybe they're just on their cell phone or maybe they're applying something to their face or maybe they're bending over to pick something up and I peer into their driver's seat. No, they're just driving. (laughs) And they're just half the car, a quarter of the cars in the other lane. You know, you know what? uh, You know, what has no effect in Los Angeles? The car horn means nothing to anybody. People don't hear it. Doesn't mean anything. You know what also doesn't work? You know what doesn't work? I think there must be some kind of electromagnetic field that prevents the signal turn from being used in Los Angeles. (laughs) It doesn't work. People don't use it here. I think maybe I'm not in the inside group text thread or something that all the drivers get. (laughs) That everybody knows they're making a left turn or a right turn. Or everyone knows they're going into my lane. Because... I hate it. I hate the drifting car in my lane and I'm seeing more and more car accidents. God. It's crazy. The worst drivers. Don't look at Asia, motherfuckers. Look here. It's You know, I used to say LA people walk like the New Yorkers drive. I take that back. We're the best fucking walkers. And I still identify as a New Yorker. We walk like fucking bosses. LA, you guys drive like a fucking blindfold is over your eyes. (laughs) With no Jedi force navigating you through the way. And no Obi-Wan telling you what the fuck to do. I just wanted to say that. Get that off my chest. You are the worst drivers in the world. <laughs> I cannot argue that. And, and your your image is exactly right. You're like, are you fucking distracted? Are you looking at your phone? Oh, no. You're just concentrating on driving. 
This is the best you can do. You're not distracted. This is the best you can do. It's so bad. It's it's so bad. I mean, we have some things that are coming to a an actual head. Global warming, debt, Pol- all the stuff. What pollution? What what is also coming to a massive crisis is the bad driving yeah. in Los Angeles. It's reaching just epic proportions of badness. What it is? It is a uh, precipitating the apocalypse. Oh, well done. Well done. And you win today's pod. Give us five stars. 